Welcome to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. This podcast is a reflection of Sharon's very clear and profound vision of the heart-mind path. If you are interested in supporting Sharon's podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Sharon. So here we are. We've had an hour more of life together, or sleeping or something, um, over this weekend. So what fortuitous timing, and what fortuitous timing in this uh, often anxious time in our country. And I've had the best time being with you. It's really fabulous. I would be happy just to sit and listen, So, but that's not going to happen right now. <laughs> um, And what uh, actually came into my mind just sitting here was a story I have in one of my books, I can't remember which one, um, about uh, I was teaching at IMS and one of my colleagues, a British man who uh, was speaking, um, and he said that he grew up in the uh, Church of England and every week at service, he would hear something like, love thy neighbor as thyself. And he said it would be like this thrill would go through his body. And even as a young child, he'd be so inspired. And then from about the age of nine or so, he started asking, well, how? You know, what if you actually really hate your neighbor? Or you hate yourself? Or you're afraid of your neighbor? Or, you know, like, how? So uh, that, I think, is what really began his uh, deeper, very personal exploration. Like, how? And many of us would say we're, we're, we've been quite inspired and by, led by certain values, and it's the how that's the very tricky part, because life is real, and we go up and down, and there's triumph and adversity and loneliness and connection and there's so many things and so how do we make it real the things we actually do care about another way of saying it is um the word in Pali, the language of the original buddhist text that we translate commonly as meditation literally means cultivating the word is bhavana b-h-a-v-a-n-a it means cultivating or cultivation so when we, say multi, when we say meditating, it actually means cultivating the ground so that the qualities, the experiences, the way of life we want can emerge. So we're creating the conditions. And this implies, I think, a certain kind of spirit, a certain level of patience, because it ain't going to happen faster than nature will allow for, right? I, tell the story sometimes of uh, my friend, my colleague, Joseph Goldstein, who he tells the story. He was also about nine years old. And uh, he grew his first, and I think his only garden. And he said he'd get so excited and impatient when the little green fluffy stuff would start coming up on top of the carrots that he'd pull them up to help them grow faster. (laughs) And so we didn't have much of a harvest. And... I believe that may be why it was his only garden, you know. So it's like we cultivate the ground. 
but there's also kind of letting go in that and that nature needs its own time to help create that that fruit that benefit we need to do what we are doing and it is also a certain kind of letting go in there so the tibetan tradition and some tibetan traditions uh they have another way of saying it which is really very cute so i think and um when we say meditation they have this phrase instead which is getting used to it <laughs> or getting familiarized with it so that of course brings up the very potent question of what's it getting used to it and that seems based on a belief that we have had as human beings with human lives we have had really profound experiences of connection of clarity of openness of wisdom many things bring us there suffering can bring us there where it just breaks open or inspiration can bring us there or being in a certain place can bring us there or being in love can bring us there but we don't tend to be awfully used to it it's like we have these profound moments and they're very fleeting we don't know how to make a home there we don't know how to reside or abide in the deepest experiences we have actually had So when we say meditation they say we're we're just getting used to it. And in both cases in the sort of patience and um ease of heart in the cultivation idea and in this idea that we're not coming from nowhere or nothing, you know. It's not like as I used to think in my own practice someday, you know. Like I have nothing going at all. but someday you know i'll have a moment of mindfulness and it'll be like all worth it you know it's not like that it's a very different vision of human life and human capacity we've been there but it's so fleeting mostly so we're learning how to get used to it how to trust those places that we've already had so so that's kind of the feeling tone of making it real you know it's not like Uh, some awful exercise some really grim endeavor we're not coming from nothing but we need to work we need the practice uh because the rest is like the story uh one of my favorite images is a very simple image as many of them are um from the buddhas he said something like this is obviously a paraphrase he said something like <clears throat> a mind which means like a life A mind will get filled with qualities like mindfulness and loving kindness moment by moment the way a bucket will get filled with water drop by drop a mind will get filled with qualities like mindfulness and loving kindness moment by moment the way a bucket will get filled with water drop by drop and one of the reasons i like that image from the first time i heard it was because I could right away imagine myself standing there looking in the bucket and thinking isn't it going to be beautiful when it's completely filled and I'm totally enlightened and I'm back in New York City and I'm floating down the streets you know without having the patience and kind of the uh the wherewithal to just do what I needed to do which was add one more drop and one more drop and one more drop right now and certainly i can imagine myself 
standing by that bucket and looking inside and thinking, oh, it's awfully empty. <laughs> you know, that is never going to get filled. And once again, not using kind of like this moment and this moment, a moment of mindfulness, a moment of loving kindness. But that's the only way it happens, actually. And since I started using that image so much in teaching, many people have come up with varieties on a theme, you know, like somebody said to me, well, can't you imagine yourself standing by the bucket, completely overlooking it in order to peer in someone else's bucket? Like, <laughs> how are they doing? Or... Many people have come up and said, I think my bucket has a leak. <laughs> said, These buckets don't leak. They actually don't. They really don't. So it is a simple image, but it's so pertinent to the reality of it. Everything else is like a story. We stand by that bucket and we tell the story of our someday enlightenment. We tell the story of our never enlightenment. Um, the story about them compared to us, whatever it is. And what we need to do is like one more moment and one more moment and one more moment. And then it really does come to fruition. We are changed and we affect change in, in lots of different ways. But again, I think the most important thing, if you're assessing or evaluating, which you should, we all should, is, is to look at your life, look at the quality of how you're living, um, how you are in ordinary circumstance. Um, that's the place where we'll really see the results. And one of my favorite stories is a friend in New York took me out to lunch, and he said, it's kind of a... Uh, confessional lunch. So I said, okay. And, and he said, um, I just have to confess that he, he'd been sitting for about three years at that point. And he said, I just have to confess that for these three years, my meditation practice has been loving kindness practice. And my, so I do it every day, whether I'm on retreat or I'm just at home. And he said, I have to say that my experience in sitting now three years later, is not so very different from what it was like when I started. And he said, but I'm like a different person. I'm different with myself. I'm different with my family. I'm different ethically. I'm different in my community. And then he said, is that enough? <laughs> and I said, yeah. I kind of think that's enough, you know. But I understand how it might not feel like enough in terms of social cachet, you know, like if you walked out of here and you, you know, ran into a friend in Santa Fe and they said, what did you experience? We would like to say, you know, the waves of love were like so dazzling that, you know, it was like my whole body became blissful. And then somehow this unfathomable peace called equanimity uh, appeared and it just like joined with the bliss. And then I had, you know, extraordinary peace. I mean, we don't really want to say I was kind of sleepy and it was sort of boring, but I soldiered on and, you know, I found somebody I couldn't stand and no matter what I did, you know, just like, didn't. that's not what we want to say, but that doesn't mean that's bad practice, right? Yes. <laughs> so... Taking away the social embarrassment, you know, um, which we don't really need to have. We practice, and we practice, and we practice. I, I would hope, and, 
you know, this is this is sort of like the, at least in my tradition, this is like the meditation teachers. Um, I don't know what you'd call it, like guild responsibility. It's like saying every day, practice every day. And in some ways, in some odd ways, and, and we know our own minds, so you know what works for you or not. Uh, I'm the kind of person who's very served by structure. And I know for me to have a, a daily commitment is so much easier than if I have a commitment for like, I'm going to practice three times this week. Because what will happen for me is that it'll be Monday and I'll think, you know, Wednesday's a really good day to start. <laughs> it's right in the middle of the week. I'll need it then, you know, and then I'll wait till Wednesday. And I'll think, it's almost the weekend, you know, like I can practice eight times on the weekend. I'll make up for, you know. But for me to know, okay, every day, this is a part of the day. It actually supports me. And we all look at things like that. And, you know, it may not be that that will support everybody, but we can discover for ourselves, okay, what's going to help me make it real? Because that is the most important thing, not to admire it from afar. Oh, meditation practice, what a great idea. You know, um, but to actually do it. It's humbling. It's not so easy. You have a range of experience some of which are puzzling, some of which are immensely rewarding, some of which are difficult, but it's real. And so uh, what I would say, you know, is consider practicing every day. It doesn't have to be for very long. Uh, It could be for 10 minutes. And if you don't have 10 minutes on a certain day, do it for two. But it's the, that's the, that's the moment of alchemy is taking it from the abstract level of that's a good idea to making it real. It's breathing life into it. Um, If it can be, you know, usually I say 20 minutes or more. Uh, But if you, you know, tennis is about what people feel comfortable, I find. It's what neuroscience shows, actually, will will make a difference in your brain. Um, It doesn't have to be a certain form. It could be walking meditation. It could be uh, many things. But I consider it a period of dedication. It's not a period where you're sitting down and also trying to figure out the strategic plan for your company or something. That may come up, but that's not your intention. Your intention is to cultivate awareness and compassion and and those qualities. So practice every day. There are also ways of practice that are uh, important and increasingly popular that are just moments. Uh, this very great Tibetan Lama I met in the, the Himalayas, high in the Himalayas, put it this way to us. He said, short moments many times. You know, short moments many times a day. So don't worry. People, you know, this goes along with what I was saying about language and the way we express it. People will often ask something like, how am I going to stay mindful all day long at work? It's not going to happen, right? But you can think about short moments many times. That's real, and that's doable, and it makes a difference. It cuts through the kind of crazy momentum we may be getting lost in. It reminds us of what we really care about. Maybe compassion is more important than being right or looking like we're right, or maybe having a sense of helping people feel they're part of a team is more important than sort of being the outstanding voice in the room. Well, I don't know, whatever our values are more deeply, we can return to them like through those short moments many times. 
And so here people, you know, uh, it's fun and it's, it's like a game and we ritualize because what we need are just reminders. The, you know, now fairly famous reminder from Thich Nhat Hanh where he says, don't pick up the phone on the first ring, let it ring three times and breathe. Um, something like that. Was there a laugh over there? Uh, I asked because I went to a financial firm in, in New York City and I said that and I looked up and I saw the panic on everyone's faces. <laughs> and I said, oh, for you just twice. <laughs> just like twice you know. So whatever. Um, but it's just the reminder. It's like institutionalizing the reminder. When you have written the email before you press send, there's another example. Maybe get in the habit of just taking a few breaths, reading it again. Decide if you want to send it. Try in this era of enormous multitasking, try sometimes just to unitask. Not an activity that is going to take you know, 18 hours, but it's not going to like shatter your, your to-do list. But if sometimes you drink that cup of tea and you only drink the cup of tea, it will be a much more fulfilling cup of tea than if you drink it while you're checking your email, while you're on a conference call and so on. And you will find yourself landed back within yourself with all that attendant wisdom of what you care about and all of that. So unitask. You don't have to text while you walk, really. Um, and pay attention in those ways. Now, these things I find are really... Are, really connected. A lot of, it's kind of a movement these days of promoting a lot of those uh, exercises in daily life without the formal practice. And I just think, for again, for me, you know, speaking of my own experience, I think that would be like trying to do something in the hardest way possible. Because it's, it's not hard to do. It's very hard to remember. Like when that phone rings and it's chaos where you are and you feel like a tremendous sense of responsibility to get something done, it's going to be very hard to take a few breaths. But if you sat that morning, it would be so much easier, truly. Um, And the quality of what you experience in your daily practice will always change. You know, so not to feel uh, this is going to be a waste of time because it's difficult or nothing's happening. Uh, Something's happening, but it may be below the level that we can actually discern right now. And so we just have to keep going. And over a longer period of time, you can, you know, assess and evaluate. But as I said, you know, uh, look at your life at that point for the notion of whether you want to continue on. So, and I would really concur with everything Roshi said. If you have a chance to go on retreat, periodically it's just this wonderful exercise and if you don't have the chance to go on retreat because your life doesn't really look like that you can find a little bit of time during the day there are so many times I've seen in myself where um, maybe I finish sitting a retreat myself and I get in my old car which I miss and uh, <laughs> and uh, I haven't seen the new car yet <laughs> We're still doing the paperwork. Um, and, you know, I finished sitting, which was a silent retreat. And I watched myself get in the car and my hand reach out, 
turn on the radio, this old-fashioned car. And, uh, and uh, I realized at that moment, I actually am not interested in listening to anything, but I'm no longer on retreat, so it's not okay to have nothing going on, like filling the space. So if I'm mindful enough, I watch my hand go out to turn it on, and I pull it back. And I say, you know what? You can just be. You don't have to fill the space with noise because you're not on retreat. There's so many moments in the day. I have a friend also who uh, moved to a new apartment, and in the, um, you know, the very dreary exercise of moving and sorting and unpacking and all that, uh, she said she realized that she'd gotten into the kind of bad habit of having the TV on all the time, and it was all like crime dramas in the background. She wasn't even totally aware of it. And she said in that whole move, she just felt herself getting more and more tense and upset about the state of the world and hopeless. And she thought, why am I in this space? And then she realized because hours a day she was absorbing <laughs> these extremely you know, tense, stressful, uh, negative. I mean, if you feel like sitting down and watching something, that's different you know, than just filling the space. And, and having it affect you without you realizing oh, I'm making this choice and I enjoy it and for these reasons or whatever. So all of this makes our own lives, I think, a very creative medium where there's so much possibility to kind of craft the day in, in a way that really supports our deepest values. So we have a little time for a few questions. Um, and then we'll stop, yeah. Oh, he's going to come with the microphone. Okay. So it's, um, I guess it's, a, it's a, an, uh, an example of something, and then I'd like you to comment on it. Um, I'm teaching mindfulness for the past several years to medical students. Mm -hmm. And um, they're looking for, sh I, I was struck by all those little daily activities. That's what they want. They want all these shortcuts. And it's very, very difficult for me to, engender in them a sense of patience, in part because they're medical students. They, they've been driven for so many years. And um, in a way, they have patience, but in a way, they have none because they want it all now. Can you help me? Can you comment? Mercy, your people. <laughs> no, no, you start. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I've heard, you know, a little bit about that, you know, not not the impatience part, but um, just those kind of exercises, like uh, what I've heard is, you know, people being trained, like if they're entering a, a room in a hospital, I guess we don't have doorknobs anymore, but you, yeah, when, when you feel that uh, plate on the door, that's the moment, it's a reminder to let go of ruminating about the last patient that you saw and just be open to what's happening next, is that right? Yeah, yeah, there's that, but I, I, I mean, I'm actually teaching them to meditate. So we practice 10 minutes minimally in these drop-in sessions. Mm -hmm. So they know the skill, but they don't want that. They, yeah, yeah, I get that, Mark. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I get that, Mark. But I want, I want quick, I want shortcuts. I don't have time to do that every day. You know, I don't have time. I tell them to go sit in the stall, in the in the ladies' room, in the men's room. Take that time. Use that time. No, 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 no. So, I, I mean, I, I get it, but I was interested in if you had some other. 
if you were going to train me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's true. I mean, I would watch one's own impatience, you know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well put. Okay. But, I mean, I only have certain skills, you know. And so what I would say in that situation uh, is this is the shortcut. Yeah. This is the shortcut. Yeah. You know, like, uh, let's look at our cultural assumptions that everything has to happen this quickly. I mean, that's, it's always interesting to look at our assumptions, right? And, and it's a profound lesson for each of us in what am I holding? What's crafting my vision of this moment? Um, what's, what's the worldview that may be governing what I'm seeing and what I'm not seeing? So we think 10 minutes a day is like a big deal, you know? And you experience that, you know, anyone who has a retreat center experiences it. I mean, you came here for, you know, a good length of time, some effort to get here. Um, and it's, it's weird in this culture. Like, I'm spending three days largely in silence. You know, so people think that's... And if you decide, you, if your life allows and you want to do a month... You know, that's really weird. But we think nothing of medical school or graduate school, you know, for eight years. Um, you know, so we're holding a lot of assumptions. And so uh, I, I, would, I would just say that, you know, this is the shortcut. It's a vast shortcut. <laughs> short times many times. There's so much value in short times. Yeah, short moments many times. But, uh, you know... Yeah, but if I could say something... Short moments many times, it's okay if you have a foundation. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I agree, and that's why I think it's great that you're, you're uh, building that foundation, you know, and that you're in a way insisting on it. I'm sure that it's not, it's not enough. I think that's fabulous. Um, but, I mean, that would be the extent probably of what I could offer, is just saying, this is the shortcut. Yeah, well, there's always that. Yeah. Because it's a mystery. I mean, having been a teacher now for a lot of years, you know, uh, more than 40, and I started when I was very young. I did. Um, there are those moments um, when we are lucky and someone comes back to us a long time later, right? The teachers in the room. Uh, and there are probably many more. We just don't happen to have that encounter. You know, to see it to see it come to life in that way. There have just been so many times where someone has said, you know, I, I sat that retreat or I read that book, you know, uh, and it really didn't have any impact on me at the time and I kind of forgot about it and then this other thing happened in my life and there it was. You know, I picked it up. So it will be that way. So I, I loved your um, question, Mark. It's really... Uh, I think that your question actually applies to um, uh, many people here. Um, because when you 
encounter how dysfunctional institutions are and how dysfunctional our educational system is, whether it's of, you know, uh, K through 12 or medical education or law or whatever. Um, you know, we, we, we want to transform the conditions. And um, there are many causes and conditions that uh, are... Uh, collaborating to make our aspiration futile. And there are also many causes and conditions that are uh, arising together at this time that um, uh, are enabling us to do what we do. And, you know, part of it is, as uh, Sharon uh, is saying, is, is um, you know, your, your life, your relationship with Pat it's this work in progress. My life is a work in progress. I mean, you know, living here or being in Nepal or teaching in Japan, it's, I really have tried to uh, incorporate not so much teach, but be the three tenets of not knowing, bearing witness, and compassionate action. You know, that has been so helpful. When uh, Bernie and Jishu first shared those, I was like, oh, I mean, I can go into the prison system and I really don't know. Or, you know, I'm sitting in, you know, Nepal, I really don't know. Or sitting with Pumla, I really don't know. But it's not weak not knowing. It's more like the spirit of bearing witness and inquiry investigations there. <coughs> And then there's another piece to the equation, um, is that you're in a relationship with Pat that um, allows you to not be a lone ranger, but you can actually, you're sharing a path of practice with her and of life with her. And many people who are in this caregiving world or in the world of law are alone, kind of. And um, I said to Sharon this morning, you know, I have a, a little glitch with an institution. It's, it's causing me some sorus. Is that the right word? Yes. Right, Jewish? But was that was so it? Well. Did, I, did I say it? You said it really well. Uh, but anyway, so, some sorus. Sorus means dukkha. Yeah. <laughs> it means suffering. You know, and I, I, we, in our pre-meeting before coming in here, I said, you know, I, I talked with you briefly and generally about this, but actually because of confidentiality, I really can't talk to anybody uh, in detail. But just to say it, just to have somebody, a colleague, a peer, a friend, a trusted other, um, because uh, I, that models, in a way, the transparency t- toward our own situation and in, in relation so that it's more integrated. And I just want to encourage us to, you know, connect, to build relationship. Um, it's like the relationship I have with Noah and Genzon and Joshin and some of the residents who've been here for a while, Bushin. Uh, Jake, I'm beginning to feel that with you. You know, just this sense of connection, you know, with Joe and Inza. And, you know, I've got, I have a, you know, I have a community. A third thing for me is that um, another cause and condition that's arising is that there's more and more research with regards to the suffering in medical institutions or the suffering that lawyers are going through or humanitarian workers and of the value of actually putting our hand on the tiller of our own mental experience 
and physical experience. And so um, the reason why I think I've been somewhat successful uh, working globally in medical institutions, first of all, I grew my hair. (laughs) I got some non-sectarian outfits, right, which was really good. So I could be sort of dissociated from a religious identity because religion is anathema. I mean, in Japan, you know, I teach in Japan, and being a woman's anathema an anathema. Being a Westerner, a round-eyed person is an anathema, and being having a religious identity is really bad. So, you know, it's not that I can get rid of all of those things, but, um, uh, you know, what what for me is really, uh, it has, has lifted your work, my work, Sharon's work, and others, is that we've got a lot of science behind us. And it is really fascinating. And there are research institutions all over the world. And clinicians like Ron Siegel, I just uh, blurbed his book. Mm-hmm. He's, I can't remember the name of his book. Sorry. I just blurbed it, too. Oh, I can't remember it either. <laughs> uh, that's a bad thing. <laughs> Marketing is not going to like edge. that. <laughs> this is on the edge, mine's at the edge. No. But anyway, um, you know, more and more people are recognizing the truth of suffering in these service professions and have just extraordinary, there's extraordinary evidence about, you know, medical mismanagement, medical errors, suicide rates, depression rates, uh, uh, you know, drug this and uh, divorce. I mean, you, know, you can just trot out these statistics. I got a bunch of them, so if you want the list. Um, you know, and I actually, the edge states... Uh, the book that I'm working on, and you know what I teach, I, I try to talk about, you know, identify the problems first and then explore pathways through. And medicine is suffering, and there are economic consequences to its dysfunctionality. Law is suffering. There are economic consequences. And sometimes you have to be strategic and talk about stupid stuff. I don't care. You're just like... Yeah, we live in a litigious society. Uh, your doctor is, you know, really doesn't want to mess up because, you know, but does, and so do the nurses, and then because they're exhausted, and you know, so on and so on. So um, I actually try to use that content as a skillful means, and I thank the people who are doing the research, and it. I think um, you know, you're you you know a lot of it already. So, you know, and. And the other thing is, is um, uh, not uh, presenting ourselves, uh, you know, when you're in a position like me as an expert, but to really be in a partnership of inquiry, because it's such a top-down world that you're teaching in, and male dominance. Excuse me, even the females are like that. You know, so like, you know, it's like, again, in other upaya, you're, um, you're coming from what Cinda calls clinical humility. And I think that um, when, uh, you know, we're sort of thrown into, you know, I'm sitting at MD Anderson, which is like doing grand rounds, and I'm looking up at, the, you know, this theater of blank faces, just like this. And, you know, I think... Oh my God! You know, this was a bad idea to come here. You know, this, but then, you know, of um, 
the sense of invitation. There's just this possibility here. So that's just sort of inside of my heart um, uh, as using evidence and also humility and building relationship and knowing that, that those relationships, like my relationship with my sort of core community, um, makes it possible for me to work the edge of the question of working in those kind of settings. And I'm so grateful for what you both do, by the way. I'm like, thank you. Anyway. Anyway, we're moving right along. One more question. One more question, and then we have to stop. Yeah. Lisa. It's on. By the way, uh, oh, is your daughter here? I'm not going to take that personally. Okay. <laughs> My daughter just left. Okay. She's on. But. And yeah, my daughter Colette was here with me, and this morning she told me that during meditation she was feeling very conflicted. She's preparing to go to uh, North Dakota mm-hmm. to help with the protest against Good. the uh, pipeline. And she was feeling like, well, what do I have to offer? You know, what can I bring? And um, of course, I pointing out to her, you know, many things she could. But I realize she is so my daughter because um, I guess I've been feeling a little bit like, well, you know, I'm not working professionally with the dying, although I'm sitting with the dying. Um, And I guess I want you to speak to, you know, for those of us who, I'm a teacher, I've devoted my life to writing and working with communities of women, using writing for healing. But somehow it feels um, not inadequate, but pale as I listen to some of the work that people are doing. So I wanted you to speak to that. Well, I mean, I think that that's a very natural human tendency. Um, And at the same time, I think it it also is a strongly conditioned tendency because I think it doesn't reflect the reality of the the value and the beauty of everybody's contribution. Um, And it's it's a little bit... uh, It reminds me a little bit of what I was saying about generosity, that the best kind of generosity, they say, in the teachings comes from a sense of inner abundance. And once we don't feel that it's much harder to give. And it doesn't have to be material generosity. So I've taught loving kindness, for example, to lots and lots of people who say, well, I chose the Dalai Lama as my benefactor, you know, the one who's helped me or inspired me. And everything was going along swimmingly. And then I began thinking, wait a minute, what does he need me for? I mean, he's the Dalai Lama. You know, what, in a way, it's like, what could I possibly contribute that would be meaningful. And I mean, I just see it all the time. And and I think it's very interesting. First of all, how do we know that? Like for all we know, um, you know, a person like him is (coughs) completely nourished and supported by the well-wishing and the prayers and the 
loving kindness of others. And the other thought I have is, what an interesting place to go to. What I have to offer is so negligible, is so nothing. And we all go there, but... I mean, I had the thought when you said that about your daughter. I thought, ooh, I never went to North Dakota. Oh, I should go to North Dakota. I can't go to North Dakota. It's so busy. <coughs> you know, but your support of her and her support of you. And all, it all, it's part of a, a mandala. It's part of a bigger picture. And uh, everything you've, you've described yourself as doing and will do is a beautiful contribution. You know, so it, it often, in my mind, comes down to, in terms of practice, loving kindness for oneself <laughs> and kind of equanimity toward the world, like that bigger picture, that, that greater sense of space. And, you know, I, I, just because you're related to Ronald, um, Lisa's relative, I'm the godmother of uh, Mary and Ronald. Um, Ronald has sent me uh, a drawing uh, on my birthday every year since uh, 1973. Now, he has no idea that, you know, right before July 30th, I opened this Valentine from Ronald. And, um, you know, I, the tears are, are coming. I haven't seen Ronald in decades. And yet, um, this connection that uh, he expresses arrives in my life um, is part of Upaya, the, the kind of resource that we are because of this, you know, a small thing. He sits down and draws, wishes me happy birthday since mm-hmm. 1973. So um, we never know, but we're always looking for outcome. And then I remember Bernie saying, do not um, cultivate a mind of poverty in yourself and others. Um, I feel like every the, the beauty of mindfulness is that from one point of view, you begin to understand that you are in a continuum of causes and conditions, and that we should be responsible for that. And we, we, living deeply and ethically, mindfully and caringly, even though we're not looking for some kind of payoff. But it's the thing that produces greater connection in the world that's wholesome. And I think that, you know, just I can feel Ronald sitting down and doing that. And, or the one starfish story. Or the, the one word that uh, you said to somebody 20 years ago, Sharon, and um, there was a two-degree shift, and that, or not. Mm-hmm. So um, I just, uh, and I'm really glad that Colette's going. I, I can't go. Um, I, I have commitments that are, uh, you know, totally dedicated to that, but uh, it's another kind of stream. So I, I just want to say as we're moving into uh, the conclusion, um, some of you will uh, go to Standing Rock and some of you will internally stand with Standing Rock. And um, all of uh, that's all uh, valuable. Some of us will go to Nepal and serve and some of us will um, 
bring uh, the sense of that service into our lives, in how we take care of our grandchild, or when we leave a room turning off the light. So as we conclude, I, I again, my deepest gratitude to um, all of you and my lots of old friends here, Diane Breen. We've seen, you know, we've been colleagues for years. Thank you for being here. And, and Liesl uh, and Sean and Tom and Mary and, oh, my goodness, Yapchi and MJ and, oh, Jim Chopwood. Yeah. <laughs> Susan, who uh, holds the Meta Group every week, said this started in 1994, if you can believe, 22 years, the same group meeting every Tuesday. Different people facilitating, but for the past decade, Susan, people going through loss. So this is another kind of loss in a certain way, the intimacy that we've kind of opened to, the connection. Uh, and we're expanding our circle to include others. So our, Sharon and I want you to take good care of yourself in the transition. Um, knowing that you could fall off the wagon really fast. You know, it's like running out of IMS to get a Big Mac or, you know. <laughs> or, you know, getting to Albuquerque Airport and they've canceled your flight and you shout at the agent, you know, <laughs> you know. And, you know, kind of like we say, fall off the wagon 53, get back on 54. I mean, and work with it. It's really interesting. You know, falling uh, off the edge is an incredibly valuable process. But ta also take care of yourself. You've just um, been so tender and um, made so much available in these days together. And uh, as Sharon said, I hope that we can also take you know, whatever little kernel we might have discovered here and go home and plant that garden in our lives. The world needs it. And to exemplify in this crazy time um, the values and the behaviors that we've been pointing to and, and experiencing with each other. <laughs>